Welcome to all you that are hearing my voice. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to share about how I will be sharing this message. I seek to allow God's Spirit to speak through me according to the Word of God, which says in Second Peter chapter 4, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I will seek to speak as the oracles of God. I will seek to speak out of a spirit of prophecy. What is the spirit of prophecy? It is explained, for example, in Revelations 19 that says, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of genuine worship of God that the spirit of prophecy comes forth and testifies of who God really is and testifies of Jesus Christ, in other words. Who is God expressed into the time and creation realm? I am here to seek to be in a state of conscious worship that causes my ears, spiritually speaking, that is the ears of my heart, to be receptive to what God is saying and to be open to allowing his spirit to carry me beyond my own mere self with the words that are from God and so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit of truth will guide me and you who in the foreknowledge of God has come to hear this message and the corporate body of Christ into all truth. That is revelational truth that comes only by the Spirit of God. For it is the revelation it is the knowing of the truth that sets us free from those things that are not the truth and lead us in a direction of bondage and corruption and death that is contrary to the purpose of God for our lives. Part of what I do to facilitate speaking as the oracles of God is to cast lots on the Bible where there is an equal chance for it to fall in any chapter of the Bible. I do not do this lightly, and if there's sin in my life, it would not work. In fact, if I did it lightly and there was sin in my life, it would be more like divination. But what I am doing is not that. I am here seeking for God to lead us in his word. Now, it's been some time since I have shared from the word of God because my computer crashed and it took a bit of time to get that all up. 
I've noticed this tends to happen when I'm ministering the Word of God more towards the beginning of the new year. For example, this year I had something very unusual happen where when I was deep asleep in the middle of the night at about three in the morning, I was awakened to hear a noise in my room that sounded like something falling, like books falling off a bookshelf. Well, I didn't think, I just thought that's what it was because I was in such a deep sleep that I didn't want to get up to find out what it was. So I just rationalized, oh, that can't be someone breaking into my place. Well, when I finished having my shower and getting groomed, I came into my room where I speak on this mic, the Word of God. And I discovered that the microphone was off the desk on its side on the sub table that my keyboard is on. Now my microphone is a really heavy microphone. It's at least 10 pounds. And the keyboard was on the chair. And it's a big keyboard. And there was papers scattered all over. Here is the amazing thing about this. There's no way it could be an animal that got in here. There are no vents. There are no holes. And all the doors were locked. And if there was a thief, he did, wouldn't have a key to lock the door when he left. I can only conclude that it was demonic activity. And then after that, everything crashes. My computer crashes, not immediately after, but about a week later. Now, I had a similar thing, except not the manifestation of the demonic, but even worse thing happened, I think, about a year ago, and again at the beginning of the year. Well, of course, we do experience opposition in our lives, so it shouldn't surprise us if we are doing those things to further light into the darkness, that there will be reaction. So I was sharing with you about the casting of lots and of the equal chance of any possible chapter. And so I want to share with you a particular chapter to read that chapter and just share whatever God would reveal by his spirit. I don't spend any time preparing my messages. I just spend a half an hour on each chapter in meditation, which includes making a brief notes, and then I immediately thereafter speak the message as I am doing here. So I want to review, at least in the last week, some of the passages that I received and then focus in on the passage I believe is the theme passage I should be sharing from, which I believe is Psalm 34. But first, before I read Psalm 34, I briefly want to mention the other passages of Scripture in the last, oh, I'd say, since today is Thursday, could go back to um, the last Thursday was Psalms 22. 
And that passage is a prophecy given probably around a thousand years before Christ came by King David, probably, actually it's probably more than that, um, of the crucifixion of Christ. But there's certain things that are mentioned within this passage that apply not only to the trial that Christ went through in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, but that apply to all of us. I am just going to briefly touch on these passages first before I get into the theme passage. In the first section of Psalms 22, I made this brief note. That's verse Psalm 22, 1 to 6. When we experience trials so that it seems that God is against us and has forsaken us, it is then that we need to acknowledge that God is holy and remember those that trust in God and were delivered from similar circumstances of trial. That's the summation of the first six verses. And it goes on, and I'm just making some brief comments here. Then verses 7 to 10, when others are mocking us, because there is no evidence of God's deliverance and provision on our life, we need to be aware of God's predestined plan that is evidence in our life and even is evidence that goes back as far as from the time when we were born from the womb. And many of us do have things that we can see back in our life where it was God's hand that protected us and delivered us. And in the context of this prophecy, this is what is being described by King David as he first begins to describe his own trials and express his trust and acknowledgement and appreciation of the holiness of God, despite the fact it seems God is against him by what he's going through. And he says, no, God, you couldn't be against me because I even remember you from my mother's womb. I remember your hand on my life. There's, a, some, there's some very interesting things in this psalm. Because as you go on in Psalm 22, the next section, verses 11 to 21, through such trials as Christ went through, as an atoning sacrifice, we need to ask God to deliver us from the preciousness of our oneness with God being broken by the attacks of the enemy, whose goal is to break that oneness. I looked up the meaning of the word darling. He, he says, deliver my darling. But this word darling is speaking about his oneness with God. If you look up the word darling, it means united. It means soul. Yes, by implication, it means beloved. But it means to have a oneness. 
And David is talking about, in prophecy, Christ's oneness with the Father on the cross. This is something that many have not taught about or do not even understand or know about. Yes, it is true that Christ experienced God's judgment on the cross and became sin for us. But his separation with the Father was not broken in this sense. That he was in his soul and spirit in a state of selfless trust in the Father. The faith was not broken in the Father, though he experienced being forsaken of the Father by experiencing the judgment of God for our sins. The faith was not broken. He said unto the Father, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. He didn't shake his fist at God in the midst of this judgment that he experienced from God. He was in a state of total, pure, selfless trust. And there's much that I could share on this. You see, the genuine fear of God involves the right recognition of who God is. And the right recognition of who God is, which is not some intellectual assent, but more a deep turning from the heart of recognition from our heart, is the recognition, first of all, of the integrity of God's love that is as a consuming fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his, to his love with the severe consequences of suffering and death that we see all around us because of rebellion against who God is in his holiness. And when we really genuinely see that God is holy, there can be a complete trust. If we see God as somehow demanding and requiring a high standard, but not ultimately pure in a holiness behind which is goodness, then what we have is a distorted perception of God as less than ultimately trustworthy. This happens when there is offense in the heart because of the suffering we observe in our own lives that is the consequences of our rebellion against God and the suffering we observe around us that seems unjust because it also affects the righteous. And so it is easy to take offense and to become withdrawn in the heart, though intellectually one may hold on to a strong belief in the holiness of God. But that offense in the heart, if it is bought into in a doubt, as, so that God is be, 
become an enigma, someone that we don't understand, a mystery we're withdrawn in our heart. We begin to form out of that enigma, that withdrawing our own image of God that is distorted and idolatrous and allows us to justify our independence from God. Now Christ on the cross recognized fully who the Father was and loved the Father. Even in this judgment, he gave thanks for the purity of God's love. That is the integrity of his love that requires judgment which is the holiness of God. And so he maintained oneness with God because he is God. And because he is God, that oneness could not be broken. And that is why it says in Romans 1.4 that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. His soul and his spirit were in a state of total pure trust. There was no deviation into corruption which would be an element of mistrust and rebellion, of independence. And it is that that caused him to be in righteousness and throughout his life to live a righteous life without sin. That is why the word of God says that he was tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin. And in that it was as if he in his obedience and oneness with the Father, took that first man, Adam, in which we as the human race existed and came out of and received that innate bent towards rebellion, that vibration that is contrary to life, that is breaking of that harmony, that... He took this Adam in whom we were and through his obedience, as it were, nailed that first Adam on the cross so that we could receive himself as the new resurrected Adam, the true one, true God. who became also fully humanity. God also will allow us to go through those things that our mind cannot comprehend. Maybe because we're in a spiritual battle, as Paul the Apostle said, death works in us, that life might work in you. We need to recognize that sometimes the reason we are under attack is because whether we recognize it or not, God is allowing us to be the one to stand in the gap that someone else might have life. He called Ezekiel to stand in the gap and to go through suffering in order to spare the nation of Israel from the judgment that was to come upon them because of their rebellion, to make it possible for mercy to be brought forth. Whether it be the opportunity for them 
to actually repent and turn back to God. Now, in the last part of this Psalm 22, which is verses 22 to 31, I say this. We are lights in the name of the Lord so that we show forth the praises of who God is. To do this requires that we fear God, which is a choice to recognize God for who God is in his being of love manifested in holiness and mercy. This pure praise that comes out of the fear of God must be done in the midst of those gathered together to worship with him in the fear of God with unfettered boldness that reveals our delight to be singular towards God and not towards men. But I think the noteworthy verse in this passage is, and I think I should turn to Psalm 22, and I will just go to Psalm 22 now here for a brief time. Psalm 22. And I want to go to um, between 11, so I'll start at 11 here. I want to point out this particular one. Verse where, where he says in verse 20, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. That word darling, my oneness, my oneness with who? With God, from the power of the dog. Understanding of dog is one that causes division. This is brought out in the New Testament when it says, We are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and truth and have no confidence in the flesh. And it talks in this context about the uncircumcision being dogs. And the context of that is basically understood often as division. The enemy will bark at us, bark at us to get us to believe the lies that God isn't who God is, that God isn't ultimately trustworthy, that God isn't holy. You see, the holiness of God is that absolute integrity in the being of God's love that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. It is a blazing fire of judgment. There are consequences in all creation because of rebellion against the holiness of God that have come down through Adam, that have come down from the very beginning of the first one that chose not to fear God, which was Lucifer. I will not get into all of that. What I am bringing out here is the importance of us being in a relationship with God where we recognize that it's the holiness of God that can only contain unlimited power and unlimited life without corruption, without being corrupted by it or it being corrupted. In other words, unlimited power and life in a way that is ever enlarging in greater creativity, greater constructiveness unto greater and greater fulfillment without corruption. That is who God is. 
is love, is so pure and so holy that it, without violating the integrity of this love, can be transcendent with the power to provide forgiveness. The assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of destiny with God, of eternal life, of heaven forever, of fellowship forever with God and with the angels and the saints and all the things that God is creating continually. That is because we recognize who God is. We recognize his holiness, out of which issues such a purity of love that God himself condescended and suffered more than you, a mere creature, humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, by taking judgment upon himself for you so that you could be reconciled to God, the one true God, the Almighty's one, Who, as the Father, is in personage beyond time and space and sees the end from the beginning and is the originator of all things? Who, as the Son, is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm in personage as God in the time and space realm? And who, as the Holy Spirit, fills all things? These are the ultimate aspects of existence beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. And if God were not a personage in those three ultimate aspects of existence, he would not be God if he could not be a conscious, intelligent personage in those ultimate dimensions. So it is the one true God, the Almighty's one. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God as described in Hebrews 1.3. The word son means expression. I won't go into all of that. God is calling us to recognize this holiness of God that is so pure that can be transcendent with the power to assure destiny to creation that repents and receives who he is in his mercy which is only perceived when we first recognize the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love that requires judgment, and recognize it personally so that we recognize our undoneness and our utter need of God, and that without the mercy of God, we cannot possibly be saved. We are destined to eternal torment because we will be cut off from the very source of harmony, of love, of life. It is the integrity of his God's love that holds life. Oh, I could go into in-depth teaching on this, but this is not the place to do it. This is the right recognition of God and the choice 
The genuine fear of God is the choice from the heart that recognizes God first in his holiness as ultimately trustworthy, and you cannot recognize God as ultimately trustworthy if it stops there. There must be the recognition that in that holiness there is, without violation thereof, the power to assure forgiveness, that God is the source of forgiveness, in that he has within his being the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice, as that is only what can possibly cleanse you as an individual and me as an individual and all creation that repents and seeks to be reconciled to God that has been indirectly tempted in God's plan and fallen. That's another topic I can't get into. It will be in the book that eventually will come out that I've been writing for a couple of years. Now, it is this recognition of the holiness of God out of which springs wholeness. Wholeness is only contained in the holiness of God. And out of wholeness comes beauty. And out of beauty comes the glory of God. God is calling us to be those in this hour that have a relationship with God like Christ had with the, like, like is in the triunity of the one true God, such as Christ with the Father as described in John 17. Oh, I can share so much on this, and it is so rich. I guess, I believe it's important to share it, briefly at least. It does say in Isaiah 33, around verse 5 and 6, concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which was foretold there, before he came, that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Because in the fear of God, which I've just described as being this right heart recognition of who God is, that is not just recognition alone, but it is reciprocal. It is reciprocative. It is a reciprocal relationship of faith working by love. Let me explain that. When you see who God is in his holiness, and you appreciate that and recognize that. It humbles you. It causes you to be in awe of God, to come to a place of great honesty or a great humility that drives you to a place of great honesty where you recognize your utter need of the mercy of God. If you couldn't recognize that God was merciful, you'd have a distorted image of God. But God is merciful because he has within his being the capacity to forgive because he has within his being the power to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. In fact, did so once and for all in Jesus Christ. And yet that actually was foreknown before he created the world, for it says the lamb was slain from before the creation of the world. In fact, in such a way, it says that, that it was actually, as it were, the act already happened before the world was created. Because whatever is in God's being as a reality, 
though it may have not been manifested in time, was because God is integral and there is no deception in him, was in reality, therefore, as if it already had happened. And so it is described this way in the scripture, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning of the world, before he ever came. It was a reality in the being of God that was so real that it was as if it had already happened, so that you could actually say it happened before the foundation of the world. And so there's this relationship that's described in Isaiah 33. The fear of the Lord is his treasure because it is in the fear of God, this reciprocal relationship. Let me explain what this is again. You perceive the holiness of God out of which you perceive the mercy of God. And when you see the greatness of his mercy to you personally, you see the greatness of his love. You see how beautiful God is. You see the wholeness in God, which issues out of the holiness of God. You see the beauty that issues out of the wholeness. You see the glory. This is a seeing from the heart. This is a turning from the heart. It cannot help but be a deep turning from the heart. And it is that turning that breaks the veil in the heart to see with the eye of our heart who God is. And when you see that, how great God, God's mercy is to you personally, you are seeing how great God's love is to you personally. And what response does that bring? It brings what is ultimately trustworthy. This is the perception of God as being ultimately trustworthy so that your spirit opens up from being like a clenched fist in rebellion against God. When you come to the end of yourself, recognize your need of God, you surrender and your soul, your spirit open up like a hand towards this love that is perceived in its perfection, in holiness and mercy. And when that hand opens up out of a deep cry from the heart and repentance towards God, then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with your soul and spirit. So it's like one hand opening up, representing your soul and spirit, and the other hand coming against it, forming two hands of prayer, or what can also symbolize a seed. The seed of the new divine nature, which is described in 1 John when it says, And this, and whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is the seed of the divine nature that is held in a state of selfless trust by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And it is that that is the secret to victory. It was the secret to Christ having oneness with the Father because he saw in the Father such, there was such a reciprocative relationship of fellowship with the Father that he said to the Father, Father, I love you so much. When I see the purity of your love that consumes anything that would be destructive and contrary to it, 
I am filled with thankfulness that all I want to do is express my thankfulness and love to you by condescending and suffering more than the mere creature, humbling myself more than the mere creature so that I can bring to you, Father, a corporate bride that you can experience and inherit with me. And the Father says, Son, I see in you such beauty, such love, such purity of love, such hate for sin, for that which is contrary to love, that I'm filled with wanting to express my love to you. So I'm willing to go through the pain of letting you go into such condescension so that you can inherit a corporate bride. And this is the kind of relationship that God is wanting us to have. That is the secret to overcoming all things. That is the secret to a unity that will not allow, as King David said, the darling, the oneness with God to be broken. Deliver my darling from the power of the dog, the accuser of the brethren that barks and tries to get us to believe the lies that God is not who he says he is so that we might rebel against God. I did more than just touch on this psalm, but that's fine. I'm just here to let God speak what he would speak to me and to the body of Christ. On January the 5th, I received Genesis 26. This is about God's blessing on the nation of Israel because Abraham obeyed God, especially in that he feared God and the sacrifice of his son Isaac to God. That is what God is referring to in that passage when he's talking about Abraham obeying God. Because of that, this blessing was passed down to Isaac and caused the Philistines to envy Israel and to fight with them for what was given by God to Israel. That's basically what's in Genesis chapter 26. It is interesting that Isaac had dealings with Abimelech. So did Abraham, where they feared they would have their wives taken from them or that they would be killed. They were very human, just like us, weren't they? They were men of like passions, as it says in James, concerning Elijah. And yet, because they had faith, even in these weaknesses, they overcame all things. They had their failures. But they never lost faith in God. And in his power to forgive them when they saw the folly of their way. The greatest example of that is King David. King David was a man after God's own heart that had a very close relationship with God, and yet he fell prey to lust, to taking a woman that wasn't his, and to committing murder to hide it up, and somehow cried with such a deep heart of repentance out of the fear of God that he was actually forgiven all of that which shows the greatness of God's mercy to those that do not fail to trust in his power to forgive. 
As the word of God says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If you go to the passage of scripture where Abraham is about to plunge the knife into Isaac, just before he plunges, just, he's just about to plunge the life and the angel of the Lord stops him and says, don't do it, and provides a ram. And then the Lord himself says to Abraham, because you feared me, now, no, that's not what he said. He said, because, now I know that Abraham fears me. And that understanding of the fear of God is this right recognition of who God is through the greatest trials. And if you do not think it was a trial for Abraham to think what kind of God would ask me, or at least the enemy would say that to him, to put a knife into my own son. But he did not lose his fear of God. He continued to trust God to the point of actually being willing to put that knife into his son and to carry it out. Such was the fear that was in Abraham that God said, now I know that Abraham fears me. It is the secret to abiding union in God that overcomes all things, that contains this reciprocative relationship of faith that works by love. And God is calling us as his people in this last hour to come into such a relationship with him that we'll, we will be those that can go through the greatest purification of trials that would seem unjust and still trust him through it all that he is holy. As the psalmist said in Psalm 22 there about the holiness of God in the beginning of the psalm, he describes his desolate condition in Psalms 22. He says, oh my God, in verse two, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. You see this trust in King David through every trial that allowed him also to utter in this passage a prophecy in detail of the crucifixion of the Messiah. Now I come to the psalm that I wanted to make and will make a theme chapter. I will just briefly mention without going into commentary that yesterday I received Deuteronomy 18. And this is briefly about God choosing the Levites. But then it goes on to describe more about how we're all called into a priestly ministry. And it's, I, I won't go into it here, but there's some very good things there. I will leave off all of that that I received today 
and maybe talk about it a little later on as the spirit may make it fit in. Right now, I don't feel it's appropriate. Numbers 31 was today. This is about the Midianites who seduced Israel and God taking vengeance upon them. And it seems like a very terrible thing that was done in the natural because God said there must be vengeance taken upon these people who seduced Israel to commit sin through their women. And so their armies conquer the Midianites, but they bring back all the women and the children and the cattle, and there's, oh, enormous numbers, enormous numbers. And Moses is angry with them because they didn't kill the women that had uh, seduced them, and they brought them all back, and he said, okay, the only ones that are going to live are going to be the women that are virgins. Now, I mean, in our society in this day and age, we, we can look at that and say, ooh, that's terrible. But you have to understand here that this is a different time, and this is looking at love. This is still love. Love always chooses the highest lasting good. These nations were offering their children to demonic entities by burning them alive. They were committing terrible things that were totally contrary to the love of God. And God had forborne with them for many generations, and they still had not turned to God. And now they were seducing Israel, and God had decided this is a cancer, and if it is not eliminated, it will spread with rebellion against genuine love, which is who God is. And so these, all these women were killed and all the males were killed in Midian. I suppose if you escape, I don't know. But it seems like a very difficult thing to comprehend. All the women that were virgins that hadn't lain, lain with men were allowed to live, and that was 32,000 out of a far greater number of women that were killed. And but all the cattle and everything were also spared, but all the children that were males were killed and so on. That was God's command. Oh, so now we have something that's hard for people to understand in our day and age. They don't understand the holiness of God, that his love is pure. Does that mean that he is cruel? And No. He does allow nations to be judged. And it's our failure to recognize the holiness of God and to rebel at this holiness that would allow such things, that brings deception, that brings a distorted image of God with a love that does not have integrity to contain unlimited life and power without corruption. In my day and age, I wouldn't advocate doing such things. Obviously not. God is love to the point that he made it possible for us to be reconciled to him 
by suffering more than you, a mere creature, and humbling himself more than you, a mere creature. But he still had to suffer the consequences for us so that we could have the opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God. And in our day and age, as the body of Christ, we love all people. But we do not condone those things that are contrary to God. We reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. And we leave it up to God to bring judgment in, in his time on the nations. And he will use one nation to bring judgment upon another. When Israel turned against God, he used those nations to invade their land and to slaughter multitudes of them and to put them through terrible trials in order that what is unshakable might remain, which is relationship with God. Everything else has corruption in it and is therefore shakable or destructible and cannot contain life. For life is only held in the perfection of love, which is in God, and in those that are in oneness with God. By receiving his perfect atoning sacrifice of mercy. And that was from the very beginning, the message. From the very time of Adam and Eve, there's only been one message, and that is that there is one God, and that this one God has provided a way of forgiveness and mercy through a capacity within his being that is so great in the integrity of love that it can be transcendent to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to give the power of forgiveness, which is only possible in God. I can't go into that. I want to get into um, the theme chapter here for a while. There's not a lot to share now on the theme chapter. Dare I even read it? Yes, I will turn to Psalm 34 and read it and share somewhat from it as the Holy Spirit leads. A Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Amalek. So here again, isn't it interesting? Here we have King David before Amalek earlier in the week. I had Isaac being before Amalek, and the week before that I had Abraham before Amalek. In every case, their human weakness was exposed where they had to lie out of fear for themselves in order to escape what they thought would happen to them. This happened to Abraham. It happened to his son Isaac with even the same name, Amalek, and pro probably possibly the same king or uh, the, the second king having the same name. I don't know. And here we have King David in this psalm. And he changes his behavior before Amalek, who drove him away and he departed. Now, in this case, what King David did is he was trying to escape from Saul and he needed a place, a city, where he could find you know, resources and not be under the threat of Saul's army taking his life. And so him and his men went to Amalek. And Amalek, he was afraid, would kill him because he knew that King David killed Goliath and Amalek is a Philistine. By the way, the word Philistine means wallowing in the mire. 
I also remember that I happened to, um, oh, I won't go into that for time, but there's a lot of connection with this Amalek here. Now, in this case, David pretended that he was a madman with snot coming out of his nose and behaving like a madman on the outside of the wall of this city where this Amalek, the king, was. And he changes his behavior before him, and because of that, Amalek says, tell him to get away from us. And so he's allowed to stay away because he doesn't want anything to do with a madman. And King David, that's the context of this psalm. And so it says here, a psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Amalek, who drove him away and he departed, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Here is the secret, brothers and sisters, of being delivered from all our fears. It is that we seek God. They looked unto him and were lightened. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. There's so much in this. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Wow. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Do you notice that there's a strong emphasis on trust? Because there is an understanding in this passage that trust issues out of the fear of God, as I will show. It's the whole secret of intimacy with God. So our weaknesses, 
the weaknesses of King David in this vulnerable situation. He does what he can. And God delivers him. He's put through great humiliation to have to behave as a madman after being the victor over Goliath and having his mighty men that are with him even here. Probably further back, away from the wall of the city. King David in this passage of scripture, despite being in such terrible circumstances, says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That is in verse one. In regards to these circumstances of great difficulty, he is filled with praise, not because he has to praise God or because it's some formula, but because he sees God for who God truly is. In fact, the word praise has that understanding in it in the original Hebrew. If you go back to the ancient script language of the symbolic letters, it's brought out very clearly that praise has the understanding of focus, a focus on God, so that you see such an incredible beauty in God or glory in God that issues out of his holiness, that when you see that beauty, you cannot help but be wanting to praise him continually. The secret is to know how to open the eye of our heart to behold the beauty that issues out of the holiness, the wholeness that issues out of the holiness of God. There's holiness and wholeness and beauty and glory. And so he's filled with praise continually in the midst of such circumstances. It does not becloud his vision of who God is. Praise has the understanding of shining forth something. You shine it forth, you sound it forth because you're seeing it. Because your focus is on it, you cannot help but shine forth what you are seeing. Hey, look what I'm seeing. Look at how beautiful this is, folks. That's a crude way of putting it. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. You see, it's the humble that aren't offended at praise. Remember how the Pharisees were offended when Christ entered Jerusalem and the children were praising God. And they said, tell the children to shut up. And then their comment was made, if we would tell the children to shut up, even the stones would praise God. Those that are filled with self-righteous pride love to control their own lives with mere performance before God to justify themselves before God. But those that truly are humble 
are those that can be brought into a relationship with God, those that have been humbled. And those that have the genuine fear of God are in a place that is always up with great humility of heart. So they are open to the liberty in praise, to the expression in praise. So they're not like the Pharisees that are offended. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And we can see very clearly that King David is before Abimelech, just like Isaac was before Abimelech, just like Abraham was before Abimelech. And both in all of these cases, it was their fears that were being exposed. And remember, these are the Philistines, and that the word Philistine means wallowing in the mire. Sometimes in our lives, God allows us to wallow in the mire of our own deceptions that we didn't know were in us until we were put in the pressure of trials that exposed the mire of self. And so we find ourselves struggling in the mire and sinking in it and helpless. But it is then that we can cry out unto God and see his deliverance in our lives. And it comes out of the genuine fear of God. And one comes to the place of the genuine fear of God when they are brought to the place like the prodigal son, where they come to the end of their own self-striving ways of independence from God, even in performance that is religious, that would justify their independence in the veil of religiosity is acceptable before God, which is a false image of God like Cain developed. This goes in two ways, either a God that is demanding and requires various rituals or a God that expresses all immorality and beliefs like a Santa Claus. He'll be buddy buddies with the devil himself, so there's no integrity in love, and so love becomes counterfeit and filled with corruption. What it is seeking God that delivers us from all our fears. And what brings us to the point of rightly recognizing God, like the prodigal son, is coming to the place where we see the deception of our own lives and the deception of those around us that have deceived us. And we feel the emptiness and recognize the emptiness instead of hiding from it. And then we recognize, and then there's a hunger for only what is ultimately trustworthy because we loathe the deception. And when there's a hunger and the openness for what is ultimately trustworthy, we begin to recognize that quality that can only be ultimately trustworthy, which is the ultimate reality, the I am that I am, Yahweh, the one true God, the Almighty's one. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. 
This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. There's so much in this, and I just want to read this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And here's the emphasis. Oh, fear the Lord, ye saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Because out of the fear of God, there is the recognition of the holiness of God, out of which there is the recognition of the wholeness that issues from God, that is in God, and that brings wholeness to our own lives. And when we recognize that our wholeness is not in the things that we've been grappling for that are in this temporal realm, like the prodigal son was, As Jonah, as it says in Jonah, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. When we observe lying vanities that would say that will satisfy our being, when only God can, because only in the holiness of God is there that wholeness that can bring wholeness to the very core of our being, that brings a completeness in us, because we are created to only find completeness in God. Wholeness is only found in relationship with God dwelling in our inner man by his spirit, with our soul and spirit. And so out of the fear of God, there comes a place where we have no want no anxiety over the temporal things of this life because we've recognized God for who he is. We've seen this wholeness. We've experienced it enter us so that we don't have that grasping, covetous, self-destructive state of being that is like a black hole in outer space that pulls all things into ourselves in a destructive way. All of our influences around us in a destructive way. Our choices are destructive and corrupt. So he's saying here, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And the reason we trust in God is because we've seen God for who he is. First in his mercy, out of which there is the response of trust in him. Because we recognize him as that only quality that is ultimately trustworthy. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Now, what I want to do is just mention here some of the commentary. I want to read what I said in those first nine verses. The genuine fear of God, which is a choice to rightly recognize God for who God is from the heart towards, okay, there's a bit of misspelling here because of doing it on the mic, from the heart towards them, results in seeking God. This is because it recognizes what is ultimately lasting in value, who is God, over the detraction of those things that are temporal and lying vanities. So what motivates a person to seek God is when they see the emptiness of the things around them 
and they recognize what only has wholeness in it, which is God, which is in the recognition of the holiness of God. The fear of God is also the foundation from which springs genuine humility that births transparency and thus intimacy with God, from which flows genuine praise and worship that is continual in every aspect of one's life. That's what I summarized in verse 1 to 9. But I just read this verse. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Remember that what causes one to seek God is the fear of God because the genuine fear of God brings a recognition of what is truly valuable. Who is God? We see that wholeness really isn't in anything of this life. It is in our relationship with God, that he is the true source of wholeness. He is the true source of beauty. He is the true source of our lasting, ever-enlarging fulfillment of destiny in relationship with him forever without end. And when we see that, there's a hunger Christ described it this way. He said the kingdom of God is like a person looking for a treasure. And when they found that treasure, that pearl of great price, they sold everything they had to purchase that treasure that they found buried in the field. And when we really find that we may have searched like the prodigal son to try to fill the void within us, we finally found what that treasure is. It's God himself, this God of love who has such a pure love that he humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could have a love relationship with him. If you would just turn with all your heart out of the fear of God and cry out to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me through your love outpoured in your blood on the cross through Jesus Christ, your only one true Son. Cleanse me of all my sin and come to dwell in my life and make me the Lord. Make, make, become, cause, be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Says here, Starting in verse 11, come ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So what he's about to say now is going to give the secret of what the fear of the Lord is. And the secret is in the very next statement. He says, what man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? This desire, just simply the desire of life itself, of wholeness itself. And to see good is the underlying foundation from which springs forth the fear of God. This is the fear of God. It is the love of what is genuinely life, what is genuinely good and everlasting in fulfillment, not some temporal Fulfillment that leaves one empty and in a place of great suffering, but a fulfillment that is ever enlarging, everlasting. 
We all have that drive being created by God in us. The question is whether we will let go of the, our independence and choose to recognize, come to the end of our own ways and choose to fear God. I put it this way in the commentary, the fear of the Lord comes out of the desire for wholeness and ultimate lasting fulfillment, out of which springs a right motivation and alignment with conscience that points to the ultimate source in the essence of who God is, an integrity of love that hates evil and loves righteousness. There is therefore the evidence of a righteous life that departs from evil and seeks to do good and brings peace. And bring peace. This quality births humility and contrition before God so that there is a trust in God for deliverance and a reciprocation of the Spirit of God that releases God's delivering power. I'm just summarizing what's in these last verses. It's, uh, and we go on and, and this passage, and we see that when one desires life and loves many days and desires to see good, that brings them to the fear of God so that they keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking guile. When you come to the place where you really fear God out of that desire, that's what you will do. You will depart from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Those that really fear God do live out of a relationship of righteousness with God. And his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be as a contrite spirit. One thing the fear of God does, when there's a deep turning of recognition from the heart on who God is, which involves awe and reverence, and the recognition of God's great mercy out of his holiness, one thing it does is it brings a broken and a contrite heart. It brings a deep circumcision in the heart. This is how conversion first comes. Christ described it this way. He said the Pharisees were thanking God as to the fact that they fasted so many days each week that they gave thighs and that they weren't like other men. But then there was this publican, which was rejected by most of Israel as a betrayer of their nation to the Roman government. But this publican had his face in the ground and he was beating his breast and crying out before God and saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said, that man was justified before God, unlike the Pharisees, who were in the deception of their own mere performance, but did not have in their heart a relationship with God that was reciprocal out of the fear of God but had veiled their deception in mere performance as acceptance before God. Goes on to say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Well, 
I've now been speaking for over an hour and 10 minutes. The only passage I didn't go into much is Deuteronomy 18. And I wonder if it's worth sharing a bit from this before I close. God is, has, has designated certain people as Levites, as priests to bring other people to God at this time of history in the nation of Israel. But then he describes also the importance of cutting off all of those things that would cause Israel as a nation to lose their relationship with God, such as divination and the observing of times and other practices, you know, where they open up the liver and try to forecast the future and all of these things without any relationship with God. He's, he's, he's warning against what can keep them from God. He's making it clear that the Levites are the ones that are ordained to minister. And I'll just read the commentary for verse 1 to 13. To minister in the name of the Lord means to minister out of the Holy Spirit of God, the very quality of being that is who God is. God's ultimate purpose is that all Israel and all the corporate body of Christ would be a kingdom of priests that would minister in the name of the Lord. The Levites are the spearhead to make way for the rest to enter into the same ministry. Others could not take their place as they were specifically chosen for that purpose. Others entered into this same kind of ministry before God, but not with this very specified ministry to steer the whole nation into this direction of ministry. And then in verse 9 to 14, the ministry of hearing from God, such as concerning the future, is part of the priestly ministry and requires the cutting off of all consultation of the future from other sources that are not from God. Such practices as divination and observing of times are an abomination before God. And that's verses 9 to 14. And then verses 15 to 22, the ministry of a prophet is to communicate the voice of the Lord to God's people in regards to what he is saying to them. The ultimate example and perfection of a prophet that would communicate to Israel is in Jesus Christ, who is described and foretold here by the Lord in this passage. The evidence that one is a genuine ministry as a prophet to God's people is that the words he speaks as God's words come to pass completely. I just thought I would read that just to cover everything of this week. How does that relate to what I've been sharing? In this way, Abraham experienced vulnerability, but he was one that was used to birth the nation of Israel and to bring people into a relationship with God. So was Isaac. So is King David. We all have a priestly ministry. And God is calling us to nothing less than to be prophetic in our relationship with God, out of God towards people so that we can bring others into being part of this corporate bride in the last days. It will involve learning to hate what God hates and to love what God loves out of genuine love. 
which always hates what is contrary to love, but is filled with mercy. Well, I know it's been a long time and I need to close this message. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to continuing to serve in this ministry, you all.